I like that Andrew said this is a day for shouting. Feel free to do that because we celebrate. Thank you. A few extra ones in there. Hallelujah. He is alive. Thank you for doing that choir and our kids choir. I have to admit I was a little concerned as I come up here because there's a whole lots of drops of liquid up here. And I didn't, I didn't see any glasses of water up here, but <clears throat> there seem to be a few extra puddles, so we'll, we'll see. That was your stuff, wasn't it, Andrew? You're, you just kind of sprinkled some holy water around up here this morning. Anyhow, I'll watch where I stand and how we move around. <laughs> Isn't it great to sing declarations like we've been singing here this morning? To proclaim truth, and truth that resonates, I hope, with your soul. There's something about being able to declare the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is alive, and be able to uh, just sing that out with our hearts. I, I love Easter. It's obviously the pinnacle of our church calendar year. The rest of the year really flows up to this, and it doesn't flow down from this. For every Sunday is really Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate his, his, his resurrection every week. But we take this period of time every year to kind of focus our hearts and our minds and to, to think about what it is. And there are great Easter songs. And I, uh, I, I listen to a lot of music at home. I put a lot of Easter songs. And there's a few that I just love to put on a loop. There's one by Andrew Peterson. Andrew Peterson, if you haven't listened to some of his stuff, he's written one album. He's got a couple albums just about resurrection. And there's one song that he does, it's called His Heart Beats. And I love to just listen to the song. What, what the premise of this song is, if you've never heard it, is that he's imagining that moment of resurrection. He imagined the moment, the first heartbeat of Jesus. I'm not going to attempt to sing it for you, but this is the words of it. The words simply go like this. He says, His heart beats. His blood begins to flow. Waking up what was dead a moment ago. And his heart beats. Now everything is changed. Because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins. And his heart beats. His heart beats. In the song, they actually have kind of a drum beat that's ba-boom, ba-boom. So you start to get that sense that this is the beginning. Can you imagine that moment when Jesus' life returns to him? And that signal that all is well, that God the Father has said, Son, I have accepted the sacrifice. The second verse, he breathes in, his living lungs expand. That first breath that he takes in his resurrected body, the heavy air surrounding death. Can you imagine the air that was in the tomb and sealed up now? That heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out. He is word in flesh once more. (laughs) The word came to walk among us and dwell here. The Lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar. (laughs) The victory has been won. His heart beats. His heart beats. 
I just put that on every once in a while and just kind of sit and let it kind of wash over me. Because this is our faith. This is where life exists for us in his beating heart, his blood flowing again. The resurrected body of Jesus Christ coming out from the tomb and then being presented to this world. Now I know there's an incredible mystery here. For it's, for it's a resurrected body. Some things have changed for him. He, he enters rooms now without knocking or opening on doors. Something has changed. He's ascended into heaven and is seated at the Father's right hand. So something has changed in this resurrected body. But he also met his disciples on the beach for a fish breakfast. <laughs> And he shared in that, and he ate with them. And he came to Thomas. He said, Thomas, see my hands? Put your finger here. See this hole in my side? Reach out and touch me. Touch me. Talk with me. Walk with me a little bit, disciples. The resurrected Savior came and walked among him. And this is it, folks. This day we celebrate is the linchpin of our, of our doctrinal system. Right? It's the piece that holds it all together. It's, it's the joint. It's the thing that keeps the wheels from flying off the whole, the whole system. Because he rose again from the dead. If death had conquered him, we would have nothing. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Henry Blackaby, he's written a book called Experiencing the Resurrection. and It's one of those books I read probably most seasons of Lent. Just appreciate his words and some of the ways that, that he kind of guides my heart in understanding some of these things. Something he says is this. He says, the resurrection completes the cross. It is the key that unlocks the door, the validation code, giving us access to what Christ accomplished on the cross. We know what validation codes are like, eh? <laughs> You're trying to get into something and then your phone has to beep and you got to go back and type it in. The resurrection is our validation code, right? It, it says that the, the, the cross, everything that's been accomplished there is now ours. And he finishes and says, and it will profoundly transform your life. Resurrection. Resurrection is that which transforms us. In 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to read some longer passages of Scripture today, but just let's kind of let, let it wash over us a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15, as he talks, Paul talks about the resurrection. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And more than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. See, some were saying that. Some were trying to say there is no resurrection. Paul, how can you be talking about that? He says, well, if God didn't raise him from the dead, in fact the dead, or if he didn't raise him, in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. We've been sold a bill of goods. 
None of what we believe can be true if Christ did not raise from the dead. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the first about many to come. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. He is the second Adam. Adam who could not fulfill his humanity, who has fallen away into sin. And so we all fall into sin. The second has come. And by his sacrifice and by his resurrection, all can be made alive again. The resurrection is the thing that holds it all together for us. And if you need kind of help with some of the basic historical evidences for the resurrection, there are a lot of good tools out there. There's a lot of good helps. There's an older book by Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I remember pouring through that. I remember going years ago, my first visit to Hamilton that I really remember was I was asked to be a chaplain at one of the uh, uh, Tiger Cats chapels. And my assignment was to teach that book to them, <laughs> to teach evidence for the resurrection. And it just has stuck with me. There are so many ways and so many evidences that point to the historical fact, to the reality that Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish carpenter and a well-known prophet that lived in Galilee and traveled around Israel, was sentenced to death by crucifixion. And he was buried in a tomb just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And three days later, on Sunday morning, that tomb was discovered to be empty with his burial wrappings left behind in the tomb. And from that moment, a movement led by his followers, led by these apostles that, that dwelt in fear for a few days, led by those disciples, those ignorant, unlearned men, began to preach that he had risen from the dead. Now, they had personally seen him. They had touched him. They'd experienced the power of his spirit in them. And this movement began to sweep around the world. And you understand that one piece of that worldwide 2,000-plus-year-old movement is sitting here in this room today. We are a part of that James North Baptist Church. We exist and dwell because we celebrate and worship him as Savior and Lord. He is risen. That's your cue. <laughs> Throw in a hallelujah at the end. Thank you. Right? That's why we are still here. It's why we still exist. Because Jesus rose from the dead. And we believe it, and we have accepted it, and the manuscript evidence, the veracity of witnesses, the tenacity of the apostles, the real details and all of the accounts that you read in the Gospels, those little minute bits that it was the women that first gave testimony. That was unheard of in those days. You know, there's things like that. If you were planning to start a worldwide movement, you wouldn't do it that way. The disciples, the apostles, they, they put down the truth because the truth was that Jesus came back from the dead. And all of that amounts very convincing arguments. But at the end of the day, 
we have to say this. We believe a dead person came back to life. And he has never physically died again. That's hard to take. Right? If, if there is not a moment of faith involved in that, how can we believe that? How do we accept that? I mean, Jesus was not just revived for a time. He was resurrected. What's the difference? In, in the Bible, there are nine people that were raised from the dead in the Bible. I was surprised when I got thinking about that, and I kind of read it, and I checked on it. The people that, uh, the stories we read is that there are three episodes connected with Elijah and Elisha, where people were raised from the dead in the book of Kings. In the New Testament, Jesus raised three people in different settings, and at his death, there's this troubling sentence in Matthew 27. Matthew 27 says that when, the, when Jesus breathed his last, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, tombs were broken open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life and witnessed walking in the city. It's the only place that's mentioned. <laughs> that's kind of an astonishing statement. <laughs> Right? We don't know how many were raised, but there were those who were raised to life. But there's no conversation about what happened after that. And then finally, in the book of Acts, both Peter and Paul were involved in raising one person back to life. But of all those nine people, you need to understand all of them died again at some point. In a sense, they were all revived for a period of time. They walked this earth and told their story, but they again died. Jesus, though, Jesus came back to life. He was resurrected and still lives. That's what we believe. That's the heart of what we have in the gospel, is that Jesus not only rose from the dead, but he continues to live he rose out of that sealed tomb, God the Father, working within him to resurrect him. And then in his ascension, he rose and has taken his place at the right hand of God. That's a picture of ruling. To sit at the right hand of someone is like being sort of the prime minister. You know, you've got the king and the prime minister, and he's the one who rules. He's ruling over his kingdom, waiting for that time when he will return. My point is simply this. There are many convincing historical proofs that people witnessed about the resurrected Jesus. But there is still a greater miracle of faith and grace when the Holy Spirit ultimately validates this in your heart, in my heart, in anyone's heart. Because it's a revelation of his purpose and his grace and his presence in our lives. See, it's the Holy Spirit who affirms that. So when we sing these songs and we declare that he is alive and we sing that with fervor and it resonates with your soul, it means that the spirit within you is saying, yes, yes, that's the reality. That's true. That's true and you can cling to this. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about this. He says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. See, this is his response to this. 
He's understood what it is to come into this relationship with Christ and to fear God in that sense of a reverent awe, and he tries to persuade others. And what we are is plain to God. I hope it's plain to your conscience. What he's trying to do here, he's actually defending his apostolic ministry to these folks. And as he's defending his ministry, he says, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. <laughs> He's saying, I'm, I'm reminding you that we're talking about heart issues, matters of the soul. And remember, that's where our boasting is found. And if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but before him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. It's really another picture of resurrection. He's saying, you see, if you are in Christ, you are resurrected. You have a new life that is within you. And all this is from God who reconciled to himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And what's the response? We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's love compels us. That's the resurrection. It's the resurrection that if you take the reality that Jesus was dead and resurrected, that he came to life and he still now lives, that that is a compelling force of his love flowing through you because he did it for you. He died for your sin and he rose to life that you might understand the power of the resurrection within you. As I said earlier, the resurrection completes the cross. It unlocks the door. It's the validation code. And it will profoundly transform our lives. I've taken a lot of time to just kind of sit and soak in the reality of Christ's resurrection with you today. Just to kind of let that wash over our heart. My prayer is that his spirit stirs us up to want more to understand more, to be open to more of what it is that he has risen and we have risen with him. That's why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11, I hope this is verses that are starting to kick in with you in your minds. We've quoted them often. In fact, I want you to read it with me now, and if you can shut your eyes and just say it, even better. All right? Paul says there, I want to know, say it with me, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, 
the power of participating in his sufferings because like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Those bracketed parts are mine, sorry. They're, they're in my notes, I was going to mention it. <laughs> the participation of sharing in his suffering is it's that continuation, the sense of the power of participating in his suffering. Paul wants to know this, the power of resurrection, the power of participating in his sufferings. Because as he does this, he is saying in in this statement that it's more than just a desire for more information. He's not just saying, I want to know more about this resurrection. I want to know more about it. Are there any other facts out there that someone could share with me? Now, Paul's saying, I want to know the application. I want to know the implementation of this in my life. I want to know the outpouring of God's power for living this gospel life that Jesus has invited me into because he's lived it. He lived a life to give himself to death so that in death he might be raised to life again. That in death he might pay the penalty for my sin that in resurrection that I too might be raised to a new life with him. See, Paul's saying, I want to understand, yes, but I want to know. I want to have that deeply inbred heart knowledge and understanding of what it is to have a resurrected Savior who by his Spirit dwells within me and compels me forward to share his good news. The statement in verses 10 and 11 really starts a little earlier in the chapter. I'm going to take you back there this morning for a little bit. Paul is making a case again against a group of people that stood against him called the Judaizers. They were a group of people who were saying, Jesus, you know, it was great that he sacrificed himself, but there's more. Don't forget about the law. Don't forget about the rules of conduct. And so they wanted to add back to this gospel of grace to really add back the law and saying we need to keep the law if we're really going to be in favor with God. And it confused the gospel. In fact, Paul says it mutilated the gospel. And so he's making this argument and he gives himself up as an example of how that doesn't work. If you go back up to verse 4, it says this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, if someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. See, Paul is listing his credentials, or what he thought were credentials. (laughs) Those are the things he once held so dear in coming before God. You know, if he was to stand before God someday, this is the list that he would have given to God. If God said to him, why should I let you into my heaven, Paul? Paul would have said, well, let me tell you, I've been circumcised on the eighth day. I followed all the rules. I've been of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. You know, my religious pedigree is very pure. See, he would have listed all that before God and saying, here's why. Here's where my purity and my hope is coming from. But he's realized, and he says it in verse 7. He says, but whatever were gains to me, 
I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever I thought were those credentials that I could place before God, my heritage, my ambitions, my my self-worth, my religious pedigree, my standing in all of the right circles, even my zeal for persecuting this new church, this new thing of the gospel, all of those things I now consider loss. What is more, he says in verse 8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. See, Paul says, once I, I came and knew him, everything else became empty and meaningless. He says, I consider them garbage, refuse, dung, is what he really says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of my own that comes from, but, but not, <laughs> comes from the law, I repeated, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He says, what a precious gift has been given to us. That we don't have to work and strive and labor and know we always will come up short. But we have a righteousness that comes by faith. A righteousness from God that is ours. And once you know that, everything else becomes empty. Everything else is happily lost. And then he repeats himself. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know what it is to participate in his death, in his suffering. Become like him in his death. What can we learn about the power of the resurrection for us today? What can we learn from this experience of the Apostle Paul or this desire of the Apostle Paul? Very quickly, I'm going to wrap up and just give you kind of three observations about this. I mean, there's so many more things we could unpack. I have to confess, as I was preparing for this, this is the first Easter I've preached in a long time. And I got reading, and I got considering, and I've got my pages up here, and I've got a whole other stack of notes. <laughs> I kept whittling it down and whittling it down because I knew you wouldn't stay here for two hours with me. <laughs> There is so much that is packed into the pages of Scripture and New Testament. What the power of resurrection for is for us. So just reflecting on Paul's thoughts here of wanting to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death. Three thoughts, and I've, I've, just, I've wrapped them around just three words. The past, present, and future of the power of the resurrection. All right? The past. You need to know this. There is no resurrection without death. Oh, big, big duh, eh? <laughs> yeah, that's really profound, Paul. That was, woo, spent hours working out that one. <laughs> but it is. Right? You need to stop and recognize that there is no power in the resurrection and for you if there is no death. Resurrection only follows death. It's where we have to start. When did the Apostle Paul die? I would suggest to you 
that it was on a road to Damascus one day. It was on a road to Damascus when a bright light shone upon him and a voice called out to him, Paul or Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the goat? He met Jesus Christ. And in that moment, he surrendered everything that we just talked about. All of those credentials, all of the things of his life that he thought were the things that were giving him standing before God were all stripped away when the crucified Savior spoke into his life. And he really said to Saul, Saul, I want you. I've chosen you. I've come for you. And I've died for you. And you need to understand you're going to have to die with me. Paul writes very many times about that. In Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ, he said. See, Paul understood that if he was going to know resurrection power, he also had to understand death and where death enters into his life. When you read through the scriptures, you understand that Jesus talked about death and life very differently than we do. According to Jesus, before anyone believes in him, that person is dead. Then once he or she becomes a believer, that person is alive forevermore. Jesus says that if you believe in me, you will never die. He's using words differently than I would use them. Because people that believed in him physically died. You see, Jesus is looking in the inner being. And he's saying death is about our, our situation before God. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 4, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. See, we are dead in sin. And until we recognize that, until we acknowledge our death and accept it and identify that it's in Christ that we need to die because he is taking our place there, until we acknowledge that, we can never receive resurrection power. And it's past tense for a believer. It's past tense if you have come to Jesus and repented of your sin and believed in him and taken his gift of salvation. That's all in the past. The end of Romans 4, it says, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. See, in the resurrection, it's where justification, the declaration that righteousness is ours, is found. And it's past tense in our experience. But it also needs to be known and to be participated in. Because there is a past piece of that, but there is also a present tense to this. It's the second part of resurrection, power. The present tense part of it. The place where we all live now. Henry Blackaby again, he describes it this way. He says, when the Bible speaks of resurrection, especially as it applies to our own lives, it's almost always in reference to the power to overcome the sin that's within us. But in heaven, there is no sin. 
So our foremost benefit of resurrection power is not for when we get to heaven, but to help us here on earth. I found that an interesting comment, because very often when we think about resurrection, we think about resurrection in the last day. Or we can think about what eternal life is. We think eternal life is about when I die and get into heaven. But the resurrection says it's about now. Resurrection power for us is right now as we overcome the sin that is still around us and within us and that we wrestle with. And the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead to grant us new life is what resurrection power is, present tense. Romans 6. Man, I would love to unpack this for the next little while. But listen to what he says. This is resurrection power. Romans 6, starting in verse 8. It says, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. It's not talking just physical death here, is it? He who knew no sin became sin for us. Right? But he is no longer in that sense of death that sin brings because he, he has conquered it. He's victorious. It says the death he died, he died to sin once for all, for all of us. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you are not under law, but under grace. Look back at verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Resurrection power is this. Recognizing that the victory over sin that God has won for us in Christ is a victory, but it must be appropriated. It's a victory that is ours, but we need to be in that place where we are appropriating that power and that victory for ourselves. It's an ongoing process. Often we talk about the sanctifying process that we find ourselves in. Justification, past tense, sanctification, the ongoing filling of God's spirit. It's why Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, for the church in Ephesus, I pray that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, his incomparably great power for us who believe. And that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul saying, I am praying that you are going to have the eyes, the inner eyes of your being, so that you will know that power that Christ has at your disposal. The resurrection is meant for us to be able to overcome the ongoing effects and power of sin in our lives. It is no longer our master. Our master is alive. He is risen. Amen. Right? And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he prays and he intercedes for you. 
that you might understand by his spirit dwelling within you what it is to be free from sin and grow in grace and in the, in the fruit of God's spirit. It is yours to appropriate as you give yourselves over to him again and again and again. The final part of resurrection power is we are motivated by hope. It's the future part. Love the example of Abraham in Romans 4. Abraham was an individual who had to live in hope a lot of his life. He was given incredible promises that took a long time to be fulfilled. And you read in Hebrews that he never even saw the final fulfillment. But he lived in obedience because he believed what God had promised. Look what it says in Romans 4. Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed. And so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his face, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. And this is in relation to the promise of a son. And so they are past childbearing years. The promise hasn't come to them. But then he says, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That's resurrection power. Resurrection power is saying God is able to do fully, and I am fully persuaded of this, that he has power to do what he's promised. See, he promised that Jesus would die and rise again. That's what we go to. If that's true, then everything he says about us is true as well. Resurrection power through present tense, through the filling of God's spirit, keeps our eyes focused on eternity. Right? Keeps our eyes looking forward. A couple of weeks ago, Derek was talking about the whole idea of suffering and how do we deal with suffering. And one of the points he made was that in our suffering, we need to have our eyes on eternity. Resurrection keeps our eyes focused on eternity. He's promised us that one day we'll be with him and we will be like him. And we can choose to live like him now. Resurrection power. There's a past tense. Sin was put to death. Presence is sin is being put to death and we participate in that. Future is I'll be like him one day. So I'm going to live in obedience with him. Andrew, you and the team can come back up and... We will sing and glorify God together at the end. One last idea just to finish off. Back to Blackaby again. Is <laughs> this great comment about how do we bring this into reality for ourselves. He says, true knowledge of God is always personal, powerful, and life-changing. And if you aren't willing to allow Christ to make significant changes in your life, resurrection power is not for you. Because if you want to embrace the resurrected power of Jesus, it's going to change your life. Then he says there's four steps. The first step in this journey is knowledge. You must know the truth and understand what God has done in his resurrection. You need to be a student of God's word. You do need to go into all these passages and, and think through what, what is actually being said is true about us in resurrection. But second, you must believe it's true for your life. 
The Holy Spirit's been assigned to help you accept this truth as real by testifying to your spirit that what you're seeing is true. You need to open up and ask God's spirit to to allow you to understand where truth is. And then when you believe it, you must receive it. It isn't good enough to know the truth or believe it. You must embrace it as yours. You need to say that this, that sin no longer is my master and that I can, it doesn't have to conquer me. That in the power of Christ that I can overcome. And lastly, you must live the truth. It means taking what you've learned and acting upon it. Make it a part of your daily life. Black, if you finish the saying this, move through this entire process and you'll find new life in Christ. A life beyond anything you could imagine. He is risen. Ah, oh, you're getting tired. I better quit. <laughs> Hallelujah. Let's sing together, Andrew.